evening, good afternoon, and welcome to this episode of the Life with a Why interview series podcast. This is the interview series where we find out why people do what they do. And today is the second part of a three-part deep dive into the life of James Buckley, one of the best well-known sales trainers in the world. Last week, we looked at James's life as a whole. We looked at his life from a macro level, and we learned that his is really a life of two halves. He's essentially been two very different men over the last 40 years. Today, we look at the beginning of his life, the darker period of his life. And there is a reason as to why I wanted to talk about this. James has a very typical hero's journey. He's, he's got a very well-known rags to riches story. And typically when people talk about these kinds of stories, they only focus on the transformation. Well, I think it's important that we talk about the quote-unquote rags part of it as well. Why does somebody get addicted to drugs? Why does somebody enter into a marriage too early? Why are they fueled by anger? Today, we find out. We get the unique opportunity to ask these questions and more on this episode of the Life with a Why interview series. Let's get cracking. James Buckley. Welcome back, round two. Thank you very much for for joining today. Sound the bell, baby. I'm ready. Round two. This is great. I love this concept. I was so like this was not part of the plan. Round two was very much not part of the plan. But after the conversation we had after we stopped recording last week, um, I was kind of like, nah, we need to have a we need to have a deeper dive into this man. Go farther, yeah, man. Do it different. That's a good thing. You've literally reshaped the entirety of the format of the podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Um, but uh, yeah, so thank you for for coming back. How are you feeling today? I'm good, man. It's a great day at JB Sales. You know, uh, I feel like we have a different approach. We do things differently. We're very human in our approach and it's always led to great conversations. And when you're having great conversations, it's a great day every day. Well, I really hope that today ends up adding to that. Yes. Um, and I'm, 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 I'm really glad that today's a good day, man. Um, so. What I want to do today, we talked about a lot in the last episode. If you are oh, listening yeah. to this and you have not watched the last episode, stop it right now. Go back and listen to the last one. This, you got to go back. Is, you're None of this is cool for you if you don't go to, to ep one. No, no you're, you're not allowed. Um, but we, <laughs> we really got a sense as to who you are as a whole. Everything from parts of your past to who you are today, why you do what you do today, yeah. and elements of your journey. However, listening back to it, I noticed that there's elements that we just didn't dive deep enough into. Uh, We kind of touched on lots of different icebergs, but never looked at any of them. Agreed. Um, So what I'd love to do today is talk about a very particular aspect of you. So life with a why, I want to understand the why people do what they do. And I've got a unique opportunity right now to talk to somebody who has been multiple people. And yeah. has done multiple things for multiple different reasons. That's right. So today, I'd like to go back to a version of James that a lot of people that know you now don't know, myself included. Yeah. Um, the 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 bouncer, the guy who was doing drugs in and out of jail, that element of of you and that element of your life. Yeah. Because one of the things that I'd love to talk about is. From my interpretation of our first conversation, there was a self-destructive element to that version of James. Huge. And I think it's important to talk about why those people do what they do. 
why these people who are a little bit more self-destructive and who you'll who will who will watch and we all have these tendencies um do what they do so you're Where do you want to start do you want me yeah, to start with the dredges i mean i can i can go back it's actually so before i was bouncing it started before that uh when i started really self-destruction began for me at 16 i think mm-hmm. my parents had gotten a divorce and I was really mad at my mom for the decisions that she had made. Um, You know, she met another guy and decided what she decided and moved on with her life from a situation that was unwinnable. You know, retrospectively, I can say that now at the time when you're 16 years old, you're just, you know, pissed off that your parents got divorced and you're, you know, kind of shuttled back and forth between homes I didn't really want to live with my dad permanently. So I lived with my mom, but I was really angry with her. So you can imagine what that day to day was for her. I was such a dick, right? Like even, even before that, I remember a young lady that rode the bus with me and I picked on her relentlessly, relentlessly. I mean, I was just a jerk, man. And it was all just this act out of like, Yo, bad shit happens to me and I don't get enough attention at home. And the attention I do get at home is usually pretty negative because that's the only way that I can get attention at home. So I'm going to get it from all these people around me all the time by lashing out and doing crazy things. Then fast forward through those teenage years into young adult years and I am driving and I'm out on the town and I'm going to parties and I'm at nightclubs and I'm meeting people that, you know, let's let's be real. Like there's people in Miami that you probably just shouldn't be hanging out with, man. (laughs) And I was the type of kid to gravitate towards those people. Uh, This obviously led to a pretty interesting lifestyle. I ended up dropping out of school. I got my GED a couple years later, a couple years later, like I waited, I had no education working in kitchens and behind like countertops, taking people's orders. Like this was my bread and butter when I was in that phase of my life. So young adulthood, I get married young because, you know, you, you meet a girl and you think to yourself, this is a great relationship. We take care of each other. We care about one another. Um, You know, we should do this. We should get married. So I got engaged and my mother immediately was like, I'll pay for the divorce. Like (laughs) this is not going to (laughs) last. Yeah. Like you think your parents don't know you, but they know you and they know what makes you happy. And when you do something irrational, like get married too young or, you know, do something that they know is just to solve a problem and not necessarily being done out of love. They call that, they call that stuff out. That's what parents are supposed to do. I didn't appreciate it at the time. I only appreciate it now in my rear view mirror. Right for the divorce. Mom, I'm getting married. I'll pay for the divorce. I'll pay for the divorce. Yeah. Please don't do this was the type of stuff that she was saying. And it was just because like, she knew this person was not right for me, was negative for me. And I didn't at the time, it seemed like a great idea. Right. Mm. Uh, So I got married then shortly. What's that? What age were you when you were married? I think I was just before I turned 20, I believe. Just before I turned 20, maybe before I turned 21. So I was 19 or 20. I, I don't remember. There's an element of me that's like, wow, that's really, that's really young. There's another element of me that's like, but it is America. But still, like. You could say it's America young. if you want to, but I live in an area where 17-year-olds are marrying 25-year-olds left and right. Like, we live in a society where 
this stuff happens every day. Mm. And that's the reality of it. We all want to judge each other. But the reality is it happens every day all over the world. There's just very few people that are willing to admit it was my mistake. I was 19 or 20 years old. I had no business getting married. It was my mistake. That's the part I'm willing to admit that most people won't. And it was, <laughs> was, it, was, it, was it part of the culture that around then to be, no, to be married? No, not at all. It was just a dumb decision. I had a place oh, okay. to live with a girl that was sleeping with me. Like, you know, she liked me. I was 19 years old. We were spending a lot of time together talking about raising a family. Like, you know, I was working working two jobs to help pay for all of the places that we were living and the things we were doing and the habits that we had. She was doing shit. She shouldn't have been doing to do the same thing. Right. Like, you know, we all, we had the same kind of like lifestyle at the time when you're 19, that's all that matters. You vibe with this person. You're not thinking to yourself, Oh, you know, what will this look like in 20 years? Like (laughs) you're not thinking about that when you're 19 and 20 years old. At least most people aren't. There are exceptions out there. Statistical outliers exist. I know people that have that are 50, 60 years old and they've been married since they were teenagers. Mm. Like, you know, I know that that exists. I'm not talking to those people. I'm talking to the people that can relate to this story that I'm telling right now. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of us out there. I have, I you know what? I believe it. Um <laughs> so yeah, so was- my mom, so my mom was anti this union. Uh, from Jump Street, we eloped. We did not, you know, we went to a friend of mine's house whose father was a minister and could marry us. Like, that's the way we, we did it at his house on his lake in Florida. Uh, shout out to the Sokolow family. You guys have always been there for me, like, you know, family, like, should, like, family should be, uh, even at my worst times. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, th- so we did that and then we started our life together. And that led to my first child, Kelsey Lane. She's amazing. Uh, I I wish I was closer to her, but we covered that a little bit in our first episode. Go back Mm -hmm. to the first episode before you judge me. Um, And then my son was born. And right after, and now there's two years between that. So in those two years, those are the two years in episode one where I moved away from Miami. So my daughter was born in Miami, but then my son was born in Tennessee two years later. So I already had a couple of years in Tennessee when my son was born shortly after my son was born, my father died. And the realization that I was unhappy in my situation and needed a different life struck me. Now here's the kicker. Remember I told you my mother decided to leave my father because she was in a situation that was unwinnable. And I was an absolute dick to her throughout most of this transition into her new life. And now here I am. Mm looking to start a new life. I remember leaving, I remember leaving the house when I left my, my first wife and I, I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm so sorry for everything that I put you through. I know now, I know now what you were after and I understand. And you know what? Ever since that conversation, my mom and I have been best friends. That happened 15 years ago. Yeah. Right. 13 years ago, I think, to be precise. That's full circle, my man. That right there is full circle. (laughs) Very much full circle. Um, So let's circle it back to the James that wasn't doing things that that were particularly good for James. Um, I don't know that they weren't good for James. Neither do you. 
I, for, to true. me, I feel like because I experienced that other side, I am the person that I am today. Some would argue that it's because of that experience that I became who I am today, which I will grant you is a very different version of James in 1998. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to feel old? It's the year I was born. Thanks, uh, man. I appreciate the shit out of that. <laughs> Um, I'd love to go back into the world of the James that was, as we described at the beginning, a little bit more self-destructive. Yeah, sure. Um, Because what I really do want to get a sense of is what somebody, what's going through people's minds, what that Mm -hmm. is like on a day-to-day basis. Um, Well, for somebody that's addictive, for somebody that's addicted to the feeling of being high, stoned, drunk, whatever, messed up, uh, that is young basically every day is about when the day will start, which is usually at noon or later, because last night was a late night. They usually work minimal jobs. I know I worked many jobs where it was seven, $8 an hour minimum wage, you know, at the time. Um, And it's about how I can get off work and finish doing what I'm doing to get money so that I can go buy whatever it is I'm addicted to and spend the rest of the evening, evening getting jazzed up. You know, I mean, that's, that's what I was thinking throughout most of those years as an addict. And that's just because our brains don't focus on anything else when we're in those parts of our lives. Like after a while, those things are replaced. If there's effort made and you really want to get clean and sober, like sacrifices are made and effort is made to change who you are and what you're focused on on a day-to-day basis. And you do those things. Sometimes it'll drag you back and it's a harder climb for some than others. But in the end, having a child will change everything about what you think your priority is. I don't think if it were not for my daughter being born, I don't think I would have made as many of the decisions that I made. And even then, after the fact, her first year of life, I really struggled to stay away from it and make good decisions. And that's just the world pulling you back in that you're trying to get away from. So would you describe it as that life? It's not even day to day. It sounds like it's hour to hour. Uh, You know, it's hard to say, like I, like I said, in my last, in our last episode, uh, there are days that run together. You lose time when you are focused on that next rush, that next high, that next feeling, that next buzz, you know, because you're laying in bed, staring at the ceiling. It's four in the morning. You laid down 30 minutes ago. And you got to be up in three hours to go to your nine to five. I was working at the University of Miami from eight to five every day. And then I had to be in the kitchen from six to two in the morning every day. Now, keep in mind, I made plenty of money at the University of Miami that I did not have to work that second job. But that's where I was getting the things I was focused on. That's where I was doing what I wanted to do and getting buzzed up every night. So I wasn't willing to give up the job because it afforded me to have the lifestyle that I wanted, but then I lose the sleep, right? I would go days without sleep. So when you say hour by hour, yeah, that's your whole life. You don't sleep on that shit. <laughs> so it's rush, rush to rush. It's not day to day, hour to hour. It's rush to rush. It, yeah. And whatever time frame that might look like. <laughs> right. And then obviously that gets shorter and shorter the, the more you do it. Um, and through a lot of this time, so where do you think that came from? Uh, you know, I, my dad had a problem 
Um, oh, yeah. He had some he had some problems in his past. And, what? you know, my mom, my mom will will say that she has never done any illegal drugs in her life. But my mom and my dad grew up in the 70s. Like what? <laughs> That's like, that's like saying you didn't smoke pot in the nineties. What are you talking about? Like, that's, that's crazy. Like, let's not get nuts. Right. Uh, but, but I, I think it came from the feelings that I was feeling when I was on whatever I was on. And my drug of choice was whatever you got. It, it did not have a preference. It was whatever was on the table. I loved Coke, but whatever you had on the table, if it was for me, I was going to do it like right there. So mm-hmm. it didn't matter. Uh, and I think that feeling came from wanting to run away from that reality that you were really living, where your parents were divorced and your dad was struggling and your mom was happy with another guy and you were angry about it. Like turning all that off was really easy for me in that world of, hey, I'm just going to go for this next buzz. I'm going to go for this next rush. I'm going to work as long as I have to to make this amount of money so that I can buy this amount of dope and then I'm done. Right. I'm probably won't even come back to that job. I'll just look for another one. <laughs> Wow. Well, um, you mentioned your mom a lot, and I do want to come back to her. But yeah, you mentioned- we're going to talk about the positive side of my mom, because I think that's where I get who I am now from. And Absolutely. I've had that conversation with her on several occasions. That's the part I want to. I want Absolutely. To to. No, we'll we'll definitely come to that. But I do have one question for you, because you mentioned your dad a little bit just there. And yeah, I think this is a, this is a good time to ask. What was your dad like? You know, my dad had a lot of personalities. He had some drug problems in his past, but I think that the alcohol was not a good mix for my dad. Uh, He wasn't a very happy drunk. He wasn't a very happy guy for a very long time. When I was really young, he was pretty handsy. Um, I remember we got into a lot of arguments over the Ritalin thing that I mentioned in episode one. Uh, One particular instance where like, quite literally threw me across the garage into the washer and dryer. Like there were a few moments there where if my mom didn't do something, it probably was not going to go well for me long-term, you know, but despite all of that in my really younger years, uh, there was a Thanksgiving actually, I remember where he kind of shoved me and I shoved him back and we ended up going at it and I ended up getting the upper hand. This was the first time that it had ever happened. Uh, and I remember him leaving after I had, I mean, I, I have a scar on my eye from where he like reached back and tried to like push into my eye here, (laughs) but he ended up leaving and he went and had a cigarette. He was a Marlboro red smoker for years, uh, my whole life. And he went out and he had a cigarette and then he came back in and he was like, well done. And like, that was the last time that him and I ever had any physical altercations. Mm. Yeah. No kidding. Swear to God, that's true. My mother was there. My sisters were there. Every, the whole family saw this happen in the like the living room floor. <laughs> this is like craziness, right? Like you see these movies where stuff like this happens and you think to yourself, oh, what a great movie. That writer's really funny. No, guys, this really happened. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So after that, uh, him and I became really, really close and we started to do after things together that. again. Keep in mind, like I say these things about my dad when I was younger, but like we also did cool things like he would take me to the pool halls and we would shoot pool, all right. you know, and like his his friends would all like buy me beers, you know, like, yeah, like that's it was there were some good things about my dad, great things about my dad. He was a wonderful man in his own way. But at the same time, this man was a tyrant. And my whole family walked on eggshells because at any moment he could just lose his shit. And usually it was me that got the physical part of that. My sisters never did. 
Uh, and my mom typically didn't. I mean, for all the things that he was, he was mad for my mother. You know? Really? Yeah. So that's who my dad was. Uh, great memories with my father. He's, he's one of those memories that live with you forever for both good and bad reasons, you know? People say he was my baseball coach. He was my baseball coach when I was young. And I remember like he was hardest on me out of all the kids. He was always hardest on me. And he was that, that coach that would like yell at you from out from like the dugout and the umpire would like tell him to leave because he wouldn't stop yelling obscenities at me. Get your head out of your ass, boy. Like that's the kind of, cause you're like out there in right field with your, you know, just looking yeah, around. Absolutely. <laughs> well, one of the questions that I have for you is, like people, a lot of people tell me I'm like my dad. They're right. Yeah. How much are you like yours? Very much so. Uh, people tell me I look like him. People tell me I have a sense of humor, and I think I do. Uh, people How tell that? me that I have his bearing, and I think I do. Um, he was a large guy, just like me, or at least I thought he was. Everybody tells me that he was an average size guy, but to me, this man was a giant my whole life. So you know, uh, I think that I think I have a lot of his characteristics, but. Thankfully, uh, I think that my younger years as a, a darker soul was the time when my father's worsts were coming out in me. And it was my mother's bests that shined through later in life after all the lessons were learned and the tables were turned and uh, decisions were made to better my current situation. Uh, I think my mother's bests qualities took over in that time period of my life. And, you know, her and I have had that conversation. You know, I used to think, that my hustle came from my dad. I watched my dad work two jobs, right? Sound familiar? I worked two jobs to support my habit. I watched my dad work two jobs to make ends meet and be able to live a certain lifestyle that he wanted, right? And I watched that happen. So I used to think because I was working two jobs, supporting my habit, paying my way, paying my rent, paying my bills, taking care of my kid and my wife. I used to think to myself, like, I'm a shining image of what my father is. And that's wonderful, isn't it? No, I'm here to tell you guys, everybody that's out there listening, do more than your parents, become more, become bigger, become better, do things they never did so that they can look at you and say, I'm so glad that they took a different path and chose a different life than what I was doing. If my father knew that I was still you know, going to turn 40 this year, working two jobs to support a bad habit, living with a wife that I was unhappy with, he'd roll over in his grave. No matter what, despite all his, all his bullshit, he would still roll over in his grave and be like, James, what are you doing? You need to make decisions to better your life. <laughs> like, that's just the way it is. Even um, if he wouldn't make those decisions. <laughs> that's some great advice. Um, is there any element of your dad that we have that's important that we haven't looked at yet? Mm. You know, a lot, a lot of my quick to anger years came from him. My dad was real quick to anger and, and violence. There were a lot of instances where I was present for that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you pick up on those types of things, and I think they carry over to your later years. Um, after he passed, I swear I could pull up at a red light, and if someone got too close to me in my rearview mirror, I was hopping out of the car like, you want some? Like, that would just, you're just, that anger will bubble up on you when it's hereditary like that. Tell me a little bit more then about, about your dad passing, because he was obviously a big part in your life. And this, this was a big moment overall. This, this period of time was, was very formative. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my dad passed from Lou Gehrig's disease. So here's this man that I thought was a giant for years. And my Aunt Jean, 
was kind enough to allow him to essentially die at her house. This would have been the second or third Buckley that would die at my aunt Jean's house. So her house became known as like the Buckley death house. Uh, when my father passed, she sold that house and moved to another state. So, you know, had to, had to let that go. Right. Uh, but she was kind enough to take care of him while this was happening. And all my whole life, I've thought it should have been me, but I was so focused on other things. I didn't, you know, you don't, you don't have that wherewithal about you of what's important when you're 20 years old, 22 years old, you're not thinking about that kind of stuff. Uh, but my aunt Jean took him in and, you know, he had a room and this is basically where he laid in bed for about two years and deteriorated one pound at a time. Uh, I think I came to see him two or three times, maybe even four. Each time I saw him, he was, you know, smaller and smaller and a little bit more dilapidated. Um, I don't know if you know anything about Lou Gehrig's. My father had a very specific form of Lou Gehrig's disease. It's called Bulbar ALS. It sits on the back of the brainstem. Usually Lou Gehrig's disease works its way from the ground up. You lose your ability to walk first, your balance goes, you're pretty much chair bound at an early stage. And then as it works its way up, you lose the ability to control your bowel movements and your, your bathroom is, is, privileges are basically robbed of you. Uh, and then you lose the ability to digest food and so on and swallow and so on and so forth until eventually you pass away. You just your muscular degenerative disease. It just rips away all the things that work in our bodies little by little. Uh, Lou Gehrig's disease is kind of a mystery disease. We know very little about it. We only know about the symptoms. Um, Bulbar ALS is said to potentially be genetic. I don't know if that's true or not. I've looked it up online and it get conflicting information, standard online stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, my dad, here's a guy that was a giant for my whole life. And I watched him basically fade away piece by piece into nothing. But here's where my silver lining brain kicks in. You know what? I had a ton of time to say goodbye. Mm. And a lot of people don't get that luxury. You know, it's car wrecks, it's accidents, it's incidents at work, it's you've been struck by a vehicle, you were hit by lightning, you know, you had an aneurysm, you had a health problem you never told anybody about. A lot of people don't have the luxury of having a sick parent instead of having a parent that just dies. And I think that we don't delineate between those things because losing a parent sucks. I always tell people, when you lose a parent, everything else in your life, no matter what it is, has the volume turned way down. It suddenly becomes way less important than what you thought it was. And when my dad passed, that's exactly what happened to me. Suddenly, everything was like superfluous. I didn't care. It was all irrelevant, right? And it became more about what I wanted out of my life than it did what other people wanted out of my life, because the one person that I wanted to be proud of my life was gone now. That had a profound impact, I imagine. Um, it did, but you know what? One of the things that he said to me was, and of course it didn't happen until later when I left my first wife and moved on with my life, started over, if you will. I, I don't like saying left my first wife. I like saying I started over. And I know that that's like a cop-out for ex-husbands everywhere. People like, yeah, I like that language too. I get a lot of judgment for being someone that left their wife. But let me tell you, you know, life is short and you want to spend it with somebody that makes you happy. That's, that's as simple as I can make it. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that 
because that person that I wanted to make proud left, I didn't have a reason anymore to try hard to make a great life. So for a while, there was like this depression. Uh, and then I tell people all the time about this like transition that took place because once I, once I started over, I remember that conversation with my mom. Mm-hmm. And suddenly my mom and I had this relationship that flowered into what it is now. I mean, my, my mom is my number one fan, my best friend. I think I talk to her every day. Uh, we send each other pictures all the time. Like, you know, she's, she's very close to me and it used to not be so as I described earlier in this episode. Uh, but I think about the hustle my mom had to go through. So this is twofold, right? I think about the hustle my mom had to go through to make ends meet with my dad, right? Like she used to work at Baptist hospital at a daycare center and that didn't, she was like, I think I, I want to make more money of my own. So I'm going to go and I'm going to become a secretary at the university of Miami. Well, that landed her into a 20 year stint at the university of Miami. And she became the right hand of Steve Ullman, the provost at the university of Miami and pretty high up on the food chain. Uh, and then she became uh, headmistress at a Catholic girls school later on in life. And, you know, I believe that I got, And this is where like my brain like shifted a little bit, right? Because again, I thought my hustle came from my dad. I thought my ability to dig myself out of a bad situation and make it better was from my dad because he worked so hard and did two jobs and still like lived the life he wanted to live no matter what, no matter who was not with him, he was going to do what he wanted to do. And I wanted that life. But my mom was the one that moved from job to job, bettering her financial situation each time the only real thing that I could have against her, which I did for years and now don't, is that she left him for someone else. And you know what? They're still together today. That guy is the greatest guy for my mom, takes care of her, pays for everything. Like, I mean, just make sure that she has everything that she could ever need to be happy. I refer to him as my pop. Like, the man is amazing. Him and I are very close. We talk all the time. I hated this guy for years, talk bad about him man, like there's so much growth that we have a chance for in our lives if we only open ourselves up to it. So lament my father's passing, but insert great guy that takes care of my mom is great to give me advice on business and law. Like, you know, I mean, like anything you need from this guy, wealth of knowledge, a 30 year legal veteran, like, you know, there's, there's just so much like transition in that small amount of time. That must be very subconsciously. That must have been very conflicting. You know, conflicting is where growth happens. People think that because you have mixed emotions about something, you're in a bad way. I think that's all about how we interpret mixed emotions. We don't have to view these things through a negative lens. We choose to see things that happen in our lives through a negative lens because it's easier, because we're wired that way. (laughs) (laughs) It takes actual effort to remain positive. It does. It takes effort to decide that things are good and not bad. Yeah, that's right. And Uh, that's why so many people don't do it well. It's like, that's great, but, um, which is, uh, oh no, no, this is not my TED talk. This is your TED talk. Um, Your relationship with your mom then, I I must have, obviously it changed quite a bit, but yeah. 
I imagine so just like your relationship with your dad, you you you've said something that's that's um very profound, I thought. Like he was a wonderful man in his own way. That's whereby right. for all like we've talked about his positives, we talked about his negatives. Yep, everybody has them. <laughs> so I get the feeling that your relationship with your mom was just as nuanced. And it's not just the fact you know, that it you was. hated her until she until you just until you left your ex-wife. I'd say there were other elements to it too. Uh, there were, you know, like I, I didn't want to live. I was in those teen years and I didn't want to live under my mom's thumb when I was living at her house. She's a small lady and I am a large mammal. So it was very easy for me to simply pick her up and move her out of the way and leave the house when she didn't want me to. <laughs> Ooh, my mom would kill My me. grandmother, actually, my mom's mother actually lived like two doors down from us. Uh, Nan, who is the matriarch of my family right now, she is suffering dramatically with Alzheimer's and is in a uh, place to help her out uh, through, you know, transition um, hospice is involved. Like we're, we're all going through a lot. This is the last grandparent that I have. I've lost them all after my, my grandmother on my mother's side my, is, is, uh, is gone. But, you know, I think that if anything, when, when we accept our people that we look up to in our families for their faults, we learn to accept our own at the same time. And I think that's what happened to me. I think my mom, my mom and I's relationship gave me somebody that I could be honest with in my family about like what happened and what I wanted out of life. And my mom has always been this person that is super supportive of all things in your life, as long as they weren't self-destructive. If she thought something was self-destructive, she would say that, but never like tried to influence your decision in a way that was like, oh, you know what I would do? Instead, she would say things like, you know, I had a thought and I wanted to share it with you. What about this, right? So she'd allow you sort of lead you down this path to like discovering a solution to a problem in your life on your own. Uh, and I think I, I do that in my in my sales coaching training yeah, conversations, say, right? Like selling, um, <laughs> like isn't that just we're selling solutions now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you ever thought of sales training? Um, that was <laughs> just learning that from your mom from the age of four. Um, is there? So we we've talked about your relationship with your mom. Is there any element of that relationship that we haven't discussed yet? I mean, I could tell you that she shows up to all of my webinars and is always like, should I, should I sign up for your stuff? I feel like I'm going to be your mom in the room. And I'm like, mom, I don't care what people think. Like you're my number one fan. That's fine. Sign up for the stuff. Watch the replays, leave your comments. I don't care. <laughs> you're, you're telling me that the next time I'm on, so at uh, next week's webinar or tomorrow's uh -huh. webinar, uh, your mom will be signing in via zoom yeah her name is reba buckley you can find her on linkedin but i will tell you Amazing. that she struggles because so many people reach out to her that are in my network they find her quite naturally uh and she you know she's very choosy about who she connects with and why but i'll tell her to look out for you well i'll wait for this episode to drop first um <laughs> but what, what i'm hearing is like the next time i'm on when i'm on that that webinar tomorrow i can just type in Hi, Riva. We're, we're, we're talking about you. And like, it's good. Yep. yep. You probably could. She's not one to leave comments in the chat or 
anything like that, but she watches all the stuff. I, like every, almost every webinar after the webinar, I get a text from my mom that says, great show. <laughs> great show. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes she'll call it a podcast and I'll be like, mom, that was a webinar. And then she'll reach out after I do a podcast. I'll send her the podcast and she'll be like, great podcast. I'll be like, a great webinar. And I'll be like, mom, that was a podcast, right? You're like, <laughs> effort. We only care about love the you, effort. Mom. <laughs> um, Oh, that sounds great. Um, so God, it's, it really has been ups and downs in, in, in both of those. And those really seem to be some of the most formative people for the, the person that we're just, that we're describing today. Um, yeah. I think my mom and dad were both big influences on the old and the new James, both of hmm. us, right? Like, I feel like I still carry a lot of my dad's best qualities. My dad was a very likable guy. He was always the life of the party, always made people feel welcome. He was a great host, <laughs> You know, like these are all things that I do very well. Um, but he also had that mean streak that a lot of people didn't get the chance to see. I saw that pretty regularly. Um, but then at the same time, my mom, you know, like you think when you are a teenager and divorce happens, you think one person is a villain. You know, no matter where you might land, you feel like one of them is the villain in the situation. I can tell you that neither of them are villains. They're both your parents. And don't do what I did. Don't. Don't squander a few years of your, your mom's love and support over some grudge that you think your dad holds. My dad would have told you, even on his deathbed, he would have said, if your mom called me today and said, I want you back, I made a mistake, I'd be moving back in tomorrow. That mom was infatuated. Oh, yeah, completely head over heels in love with my mother. Make no mistake. Yeah. And that explains a little bit more as to why, when your mom did decide to leave, um, it, you know, sometimes the bad just outweighs the good. Yeah. I, I mean, you hate to put too fine a point on it. You know, I, I probably could have stuck it out for 20 years with my first wife, but that would have made me a very different person. Well, more so what I mean is you would have seen the effect that that would have had on your dad more so than anything else, really. And that would explain, well, not explain, but that would have had an impact as to why she became the quote unquote villain and him not so much. Well, that was real easy for me to label her as the villain. If I labeled my dad as the villain, I probably would have got my ass whipped. Fair. Yeah. Very fair. Element, <laughs> of, element of pragmatism to it. <laughs> well, I mean, I hate to call a spade a spade, but what are you going to do? Like, you know, you're, you have to make a choice. I've sat, I've been in family therapy quotes around family therapy. I have been in therapy my entire life. And during this divorce, I can't tell you how many therapists turned to me and my sister and said, what do you want to do? Where do you want to be? Who do you want to be with? This is going this way. Like, be ready to make this decision. I want to put it in front of you because it's very real. Right. They were just like, so the therapist's job was to spot it and go, okay. This yeah, is man. I mean, like, so, so my family uh, had access because my mother had a great job at the University of Miami. She had great insurance. They were going to provide her with anything that she needed, including the therapy sessions that my sister and I went to our entire lives. Like, <laughs> I don't think I could stress enough to you the level of therapy that took place uh, in that 
in that time frame because we probably went through, I mean, I got pulled out of class several times a month to go to therapy sessions where doctors were just like, why are you disrupting class all the time? And you're failing all your classes. And I heard you didn't show up on Wednesday. And what did you do that day? Oh, yeah, I went out to the beach with some friends and we smoked some crack and got high. And then I came back home. Like this, this was the kind of like stuff that we ended up having to go through. And, you know, to, to put a finer point on the decade that we were living in, this was the 90s, man. Like therapy and medication and pharma for like adjusting behavioral norms was all the rage at this point. People were talking left and right about things like Prozac and lithium and Wellbutrin and Ritalin and all these different drugs that were hitting the scene left and right. And parents everywhere were like, oh yeah, it definitely sounds like my kid. They need that. You know, they, I got a call from the teacher the other day about him disrupting class and making jokes. He must need Prozac. He must be depressed. You know, like this was the way of the 90s. This is why so many books have come out for like people that have been addicted to drugs and addicted to, you know, antidepressants and, you know, uplifting medications and speed and things like this for years, just because that was the time period. Now, no, you know, again, rearview mirror, right? We all see it very clearly. Like, oh man, we were just feeding an industry in that, in that time. But those industries are what they are now because of that time period. You know, yeah. <laughs> and you, and you then growing up in all of this, no wonder you were the way you were. Um, so let's talk a little bit. Let's, let's, let's finish up with the why of that version of James. From what I can see. Well, okay. What was like, why I was a dick or why I no, changed? No, 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 no. I, I, again, I, it will take a lot for me to even describe that past version of you as a dick because we've gone into so many different elements of them. I feel like we understand. Um, but the the why of of that guy, the guy who liked the violence of the of the bouncing, who liked the the escapism of the of the drugs, who was very angry with the home life. Um, it very much seems like from an outside perspective to from an outside in it's that guy's a waster that guy's got no emotions that guy's just destined to self-destruct and the way that we've sort of looked at it as for everything it's 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 nuanced and it's you know but it seems like your why back then was a complete lack of structure Oh yeah. I never had any type of structure forced on me. I don't think my sisters and I ever had that. A lot of kids grow up going to church. A lot of kids grow up going to Sunday school. A lot of kids grow up with like, you know, weekly proceedings and routines. We didn't have any of that. So, I mean, I think, I think for a little while, my mom and I would sit down and they would help me with my homework for a little while. We had that, but I, you know, for the most part, so you were lucky if I showed up from junior high into high school, you were lucky if I showed up with any books at all. So no wonder then rush to rush to rush became the structure. Well, yeah, it was the only thing that mattered. <laughs> and it was, a, but it was also a structure. It was a goal to hit. It was, it was the only structure that, ma- that I could see at the time. Um, if people are, is there anything practical people can do these days? Because we all know people 
that or you'll come across people where you, a a judgmental part of your brain will go oh that person is just you know destined for x y or z i'm gonna try um, to be pragmatic with the advice i give here uh practical mm-hmm. yes speak to each other communicate with one another that is the way it's a dying art like being able to hold intelligent conversation with another human being is the best way to get to know them, get them to trust you, trust them, right? Build that bridge. That's a real thing. People need to have that skill in their lives. You're not going to get it staring down at your smartphone. Smartphones connect us. That's a wonderful thing. But the ability to communicate effectively, man, that is a skill that most people would kill for. And yet they do nothing to sharpen that saw ever. And I feel like that's the most pragmatic thing that people can do that is, in fact, practical. Talk to each other. Find that line of conversation that matters to both of you. That's an important thing. Very practical, as per usual. Um, James, thank you very much for this. God, yeah, I feel like, so like I said, the last time we talked, we, we touched on your dad, we touched on your mom, we touched on your family, we touched on your childhood situation, but we didn't get to get deep into it. And I think today, we've come to learn a little bit more as to why you were the way you were. However, we are not done. Uh, so next, now, next week, I want to talk a little bit more as to why you are the way you are. Um, there's a couple of different elements to it, but I'm looking forward to, to cracking into them. Send me the invite, buddy. <laughs> Will do. All right. Um, good chatting with you, and I'll, I'll chat with you again soon. We'll see you, bud. That's one of the realest conversations I have in this series. In every other episode, we talk about the positive and the negative. Today, we try to focus on the negative. And that's why we got the sound bites and the clips and the pieces of information that we got today. This is a version of James Buckley that many of us will never see. Many of us have never seen. And those of us that came to know him later on in his life, this is new information to a lot of us. And that's why I wanted to deep dive into it. That's why today's episode is so important. Next week, we deal with the second half of James's life, which, you know, hasn't been all roses either. However, it's a hell of a lot better for him, and it's how he has built his life from what we've talked about today. One of the main thoughts that has stuck with me out of today is the impact that James's family has had on him. And I wonder if we all have the exact same impact, except his is just more pronounced. It's easier to spot his because it's, as he said, it's it's easier to spot the negative than spot the positive earlier today. Um, it is very much easier to spot the negative than the positive and to react to the negative than the positive. And what he said there, the fact that it is a choice to be and remain positive. Um, I think that's something that's going to stick with me for a while. Let me know if it's going to stick with you. Speaking of which, I'd appreciate it if you did the usual. If you went searching for the podcast so we can find it on the on the SEO side of things. Um, maybe liked a YouTube clip, subscribed on the YouTube side of things. Uh, downloaded it on, on, on whatever streaming platform you're listening to now. The usual stuff. But I'd really love to know what you thought of today. Um, This was a slightly different episode than we will typically do, and I hope to do more of them. Um, But I think it's one of the most useful. Regardless, hope you're having a good day. 
Let me know what you think, and I will chat with you again soon. Have a good one.